Future. B. The clapping grows. By the last lines of the song, the entire crowd has joined in, clapping on beat with Marvin, breaking decorum to honor such brilliance. No one I know remembers who won the game. For some of us, denying what this country is, and what it is doing to our bodies, is impossible. We are perhaps at the crossroads that Marvin Gaye was at in 1970, with the answers as clear as they've ever been, yet still pushing to ask questions. Trying to push our shoulder against one of the millions of doors America built to keep us out. And we are all here, we unlikely patriots. All of us pushed to the margins, trying to fight for ourselves and one another, all at once. Celebrating while still fighting, which is perhaps what represents the ethos of this country more than anything else. To bear witness to so much death that could easily be your own is to push toward redefining what it is to be a patriot in this country. It is even to push toward redefining country, until it becomes a place where there is both pride and safety. And so a transgender woman steps into the hallowed ground of the White House and fights to be heard in the name of undocumented transgender immigrants. And so a woman scales a flagpole and tears down a symbol of oppression with her bare hands, taking time on the way down to deliver a word from the same God that spoke Marvin into revolution. And so a community buries more of its own, but does not forget to celebrate, and does not forget to sing. These are the people who I will remember most when I look up to the sky this year, watch it explode in light, and hear a child laughing. February 26, 2012 The drive from Columbus, Ohio, to the middle of Minnesota isn't particularly a simple undertaking. It is the worst kind of Midwest drive, the one that spans nearly 12 hours over the course of mostly wide-open, farming land. For a brief moment, there is the excitement of Chicago, or the rolling greens of Madison, Wisconsin. It's a tedious trip, but one that feels shorter with a person you like, and maybe want to impress. So in the still dark of morning, I jumped into a car next to a girl I liked and wanted to impress. Atmosphere was playing in Minnesota that night, and I wanted to go a little and she wanted to go a lot and so I, then, wanted to go a lot. It was a Sunday at the end of winter. It was raining. Atmosphere is a rap duo, made up of Slug, the rapper, and Ant, the producer, from Minneapolis. They are, in many ways, the darlings of the Midwest underground rap scene, the crown jewel of Minneapolis indie hip-hop label Rhymesayers. Their career, by 2012, spanned nine albums over 15 years, all of them filled with Slug's singular ability to either pick apart his own flawed life, or enter the life of someone else and give their stories depth, a softness that might not otherwise be afforded to them by the outside world. His natural eye toward empathy is why, even with fans stretching all over the country, the passion for atmosphere in the Midwest is at its most eager. Slug is an MC that comes across like the guy you might bump into telling a story at the supermarket or the diner. A pal of your parents who comes by to talk about the days that were both good, and old. Couple this with the fact that they are seemingly always working, piling on hundreds of shows in most years while also dropping a consistent stream of EPs, and their status with kids in working-class Midwest towns is cemented. The Fifth Atmosphere Studio album, When Life Gives You Lemons, You Paint That Shit Gold, is, by all accounts, a concept album. Slug spends most of the songs looking into the lives of people who are struggling, single parents, minimum wage earners, just trying to hang on to what they've got before someone comes to take it away. In 2008, I was struggling my way through my early 20s, 
leaving a good job with the state to sell music at a local bookstore because of some flawed punk concepts about principles. Every hour I worked stocking records and CDs or bantering with some customer about the importance of grunge felt like I was slouching my way closer to some type of freedom, even though there were months I could barely afford to keep my phone on, or times I had to wait until direct deposit hit at midnight on a Friday before I could eat. There are the politics of chosen struggle. What it is to not go home, when going home might be a more comfortable option. When life gives you lemons, you paint that shit gold was filled with anthems for me and my friends. Kids who were getting by, leaning on each other when they could. Kids that would pool their money and get a pizza on a Saturday night after working for 10 hours. It was this album that played at house parties in whichever apartment had the most space to spare. This album that I would have in my headphones while I walked home from work in the rain, with my dark hood pulled up over my head. On February 26, 2012, Atmosphere had a show in St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is about 45 minutes outside of Minneapolis. They were playing in the Atwood Ballroom, a banquet hall-type venue on St. Cloud State University's campus. Not exactly the ideal setting for an underground rap show, but it was still not enough to turn us off from the journey. By 2012, my struggle was at least more glamorous. A few places would pay me to write words here and there, which would keep my lights on and keep a frozen pizza hanging out in my freezer. The 12-hour journey on that day seemed logical. My Sundays were mine and mine alone. I had just crawled out of the wreckage of a horrible relationship, and the potential to spend that much time in a car with someone who I liked felt thrilling. Someone who maybe liked me back, or at least didn't think too poorly of spending 12 hours in a box with me, traversing the vast landscape of soybeans. We stopped for a few minutes in northern Ohio while the sun rose. We watched the planes take off and wished ourselves, for a moment, winged machines. On the trip north through Illinois, the playlist was atmosphere-heavy. This is a thing that I did, often. Listening to the act on the way to see the act, trying to figure out what songs they might play. I was missing the NBA All-Star Game for this, something that I had strongly wanted to watch, but was told not to worry about by my smarter friends. One of them rolled her eyes, exasperated. You like this girl, right? She said. Then why would you sit and watch a game that happens every year where it doesn't even matter who fucking wins? There was sound logic there, but the NBA All-Star Game was, in my life, less about who won and who lost. There was something freeing about it, the tone and pace of it. Seeing all of these players, mostly black, who spent the entire season restricted by the NBA's structure, sometimes slowed down by coaches. Watching them call back to some of their playground days, ones that perhaps mirrored my own in freedom, if not in talent. Seeing players attempt alley-oop passes to themselves, or dribble moves that would get them pulled from most games. Most of the people I know who hate the NBA All-Star Game are white. They complain, mostly, about the showboating, or the lack of fundamentals. They don't understand why anyone would want to watch a game like that. When I think about black freedom, I think about the small moments of it, in concert with a larger-scale version of liberation. The NBA All-Star Game brings me joy as it brought me joy to run on the blacktop and throw a no-look pass, or watch someone dribble a ball through someone else's legs and get a chorus of oohs from spectators. There is something about performing toward our roots in this manner, without an eye toward the white people who may be watching us, following our every movements with fear, or disgust. 
My favorite parts of a road trip with another person are the moments where silence allows everyone in the car their own thoughts, and the space to assume what the other person is thinking. The song Dreamer from When Life Gives You Lemons is about a teenage mother who is raising kids on her own. She fantasizes of a better life until she realizes that her family is the better life. This song filled the car as we crossed through the middle of Wisconsin, and it made me think of the value in someone who is willing to see the world and write about it in the way that Slug does. The consideration of empathy in mainstream spaces does a lot, but what it might do better than anything is convince someone to fight for your life after your life is taken. Or, at worst, it might convince someone that you don't deserve to be murdered because you wore gold teeth or typed a curse word into a box on the internet. For most of the drive I considered this. Slug, championed as the MC who could tell stories accessible enough for everyone in the world to enter. I envied this then, from the passenger seat of a car being driven by someone I desperately wanted to talk to in that moment, but instead pushed my lips to a small bottle of sweet tea to keep our silence hours. There is a real excitement in seeing an artist play a show in, or around, the city they're from. I've made trips across the country to see punk bands and rappers play tiny dives in the towns that made them. There's a natural comfort that takes the stage. It comes with, I imagine, the comfort of knowing you could fall into your own bed after you're done. I haven't seen atmosphere since February 26, 2012, mostly because I haven't been able to catch them in Minnesota again. That night, what I remember more than anything is feeling, for a moment, like the floor might collapse under the weight of our collective thrill. I don't mean the usual anxieties about the collection of bodies in a packed space. I mean, during the show, when Slug leaned over the stage and told the audience to jump, everyone jumped, and when I landed, I felt the floor bend itself underneath us all, like it was gritting its teeth just to contain our endless celebration of this hip-hop homecoming. And I did, for a moment, look down and feel like if this were to be it, I would be alright. If the floor gave out and the walls caved in, and we were all trapped under the ruins of the Atwood Ballroom in St. Cloud, Minnesota, I would at least have gone in a room where people were getting free on their own terms. It remains one of the best rap shows I have ever seen, not just because I was there with someone who made me feel like there was a window for my heartbreak to crawl out of, and not just because I got to watch her smile and sway wide when the first notes of Dreamer bled through the speakers. It felt, on that night, like there was a true contract between audience and performer. What Slug does on record so well, the communication of concern, translates even better to Atmosphere's live shows, where there is space to engage in plain conversation with the listening masses. That night, he put a sneaker on the edge of a monitor near the front of the stage, out of breath after playing through what felt like 30 songs in a row. Listen, he said, waiting a beat for the crowd to quiet. Whatever else is happening out there in the world tonight, I need y'all to know that we're gonna be alright. We're going to make it. The feeling I love most is walking into night air after spending hours cloaked in sweat, dancing in a small room with strangers. If the night air is cool, the way it sits on your skin is a type of forgiveness. A balm for all of the heat you've leaned into. Sometimes, I think I still only go to shows for the way it feels to leave them, everyone pouring out of a bar or an arena a collective gasp rising after everyone feels the same breeze at once. On the night of February 26, 2012, most phones didn't work in the venue. I watched everyone staring, frustrated, at their phone screens, as they were denied the opportunity to post a photo or send a tweet. I eventually turned mine off until I got my fill of the cool night baptism. 
I turned it back on at just past midnight. Trayvon Martin had already been dead for five hours. It was Twitter first, that night. Bits of a story, a shooting in Sanford, Florida. A teenage black boy. Iced tea and Skittles. Neighborhood Watch. Emmett Till, Emmett Till, again. Even in the younger stages of Twitter, I had only been on for about a year and a half, the details of the story were being best reported on the scrolling timeline, even though the information was disjointed, coming too fast. I hadn't adjusted myself to the routine like I have now. This was the first time I was reading about the murder of an unarmed black person in near real time. The first time I was seeing reactions to it from people online in the same moment it was happening. The boy didn't even have a name yet, he was just a parade of descriptions, black. Hoodie. Boy. Walking, and then not. On February 26, 2012, people weren't yet insisting heavily that Trayvon Martin deserved to die. People weren't yet arguing over the hooded sweatshirt as a respectable piece of clothing to wear in the rain. The protests hadn't swarmed thick into the streets. His murderer hadn't even been charged. I sat on a bench outside of the Atwood ballroom, scrolling through my phone, glued to it as I would learn to become in these moments each year after. Over my right shoulder, my date to the show read along with me, first Twitter and then small news hits. Every now and then, she would gasp, something quick and silent. I remember looking up and into the still lingering crowd and seeing another person scrolling their phone, stopped in their tracks. And then another, and one or two more. I imagined they were all taking in what I was taking in, even if they weren't. I wanted, for a moment, to share in this small horror. What a country's fear of blackness can do while you are inside a room, soaking in joy, being promised that you would make it through. On kindness. I am made more uneasy by a rage that rests itself beneath silence than I am with something loud, stomping along a house and making glass rattle. Growing up, my father was a mostly calm man, even in anger. Instead of spankings, he preferred long, drawn-out lectures, often peppered with stories, to get his point across. My mother's voice, naturally loud, did most of its work when Joy was afoot. Her laugh was the type to echo through walls. She was a woman with a loud personality, loud smile, loud walk, the type of presence you could feel coming from miles away. In a largely black neighborhood, I grew up around parents who were not all like my own. My friend Josh, for example, had two parents that were both loud and stern, laying down strict rules and enforcing them at all costs. Other friends had relaxed, playful parents. These were my favorite. The ones who appeared to let all things slide. Video games played until all hours, basketball dents in a garage. One such set of parents, always gentle and thrilled to see me and my brother, split when we were just teenagers. The mother stayed, the father drifted miles away. We never saw him again. The mother, wrecked by grief, grew more and more silent as the years wore on. She stopped laughing, barely smiled when she recognized me on a bike going past her house. A few years ago, I'd heard that after her youngest son went to college, she stopped leaving the house altogether. In temperament, I am more of my father's son than my mother's. When I was 16, I was in a car being driven by two of my white friends when we were pulled over on I-270 in Columbus. We were speeding, tearing down the highway at least 15 miles over the speed limit. When the police officer arrived at the passenger window, where I was sitting, 
I was laughing loud, as my mother would, at a joke a friend in the backseat told to loosen the mood. None of us had ever been in a car that was pulled over before, and joking seemed like the right thing to calm us. The officer snapped at me. Asked, of course, if I thought anything was funny. Demanded to know what I was so excited about. This, before even addressing the white driver for his infraction. High school was the first time in my life that I had white friends I considered close to me. All of my black friends growing up were loud, sometimes quick to emotion. Among ourselves, among our neighborhoods, it all felt like it was the same volume. A low, and safe hum. Kept within, away from those who may wish to dull it. Through high school and my playing time in college, my scouting reports for soccer all read the same. The highlights, speed, agility, instincts. The lowlights, balance, focus, work ethic. Toward the end, all of them that I recall had reads on my personality that felt odd. Words like passionate and fired up and emotive would hang in the closing sentences as compliments, I imagine, but uneven ones, given my play. I played sports as I imagined my father would have, all business, the occasional burst of outward emotion, but nothing startling. My freshman year of college, I played for my university as the first American-born player of color. I stepped onto the field for a preseason match, in a sea of white jerseys, white faces, white coaches, white fans. I got a yellow card for clapping in slight frustration, in the direction of the sky, after I allowed a ball to roll out of bounds. What I am told most often now is that I am kind. I am told this more by white people than anyone else, but I am told it often by everyone. That my kindness is a blessing. People who don't know me particularly well talk about how they can see a kindness in my eyes, or feel a kindness that I have deep within. I generally laugh, shrug uncomfortably, and give a small thanks. I know, particularly when it is by people who aren't familiar with me, that what they are actually complimenting is an absence of that which they perceived, perhaps expected. I often joke about how I don't wear anger well. To a very real extent, this is true. I didn't see anger translated well growing up, so it isn't an emotion that I have worked through enough times to push outside of myself. Another element of that is rooted in the distance between my anger and the trouble it might cause me if taken in by the wrong audience. I read about a black man in the Columbus suburbs not far from where I went to college. His neighbor called the police on him because he heard the black man raising his voice to a level that the neighbor wasn't used to hearing. He feared that something dangerous was happening in the house. When the police arrived, it turned out the man was just singing. Practicing for his church choir. The stakes are high and the capacity for mercy is not. When I yell, I feel an immediate sense of guilt afterwards. Shame, sometimes fear. People aren't used to my voice pushing above a joyful monotone. In the rare times I am confronted with anger spilling out, I wish to collect it quickly, before it grows all over everyone in the room. Before I become just angry and nothing else. What I'm saying is that I've been thinking a lot about black anger lately, and what we do and don't do with it. The relief that people have when a protest centering on black lives aligns with their ideas of peace. The relief that I have when there are no pictures of police pushing protesters to the ground. I am interested in what we afford each other, in terms of the emotions that can sit on our skin, depending on what that skin might look like. This makes me ask the question of who benefits from this, our eternal facade of kindness? Is the true work of kindness owed to ourselves, 
and our sanity? This is not saying that I, personally, am waiting in a rage at all times. I'd like to think that people are largely correct, on any given day, I imagine myself a kind person. Or, at least, a person who is trying. One who reaches for the well of empathy before all others, even if I come up empty at the end. What possibilities would black people be allowed if their anger, and all of the ways it manifested itself, could be seen as a part of the human spectrum? The way we cut a wide lane for riots after sports games, for punk rock and metal bands fronted by white anarchists who wish to overthrow all unjust modes of government. Our fights aren't going to be equal in the world, but if we are pushing our backs against the same barriers of injustice, I would like my anger to live in the world as your anger does. Reasonably, with expectations that it doesn't make me who I am. It is a task, some days. To think about your consistent kindness as, instead, a product of restraint. Black women, sitting at the intersection of race and gender, experience this more than I do, more than their male counterparts. Tabbed as angry, and only angry. I think, then, of my mother. How she always made sure to laugh louder than anyone in the room. How in every picture, she smiled with all of her teeth. How in the markets by our house, she would call everyone by their first names. Warmly touch them on their shoulders and ask about their families. How, even then, on a day where she was exhausted, I remember walking into the store with her. She was not smiling, but kind to the white man behind the register, offering short but polite responses to his questions. When handing her back change, he looked at my mother and said, everything okay? You just seem so mad today. And I can't be sure, but I think I remember a smile, forcing its way along the edges of her mouth. In the summer of 1997, everyone took to the streets in shiny suits. This is the one where the mother dies. I feel drawn to apology, though I imagine you must have known it was coming. Here, perhaps I should tell you that she died in summer. If I say that I was at least outside rather than cocooned by cold, pressing my grief slick face to a window, perhaps the image is more bearable. The thing about dying unexpectedly is that it certainly saves you the heartbreak of watching your loved ones fuss over you. I kissed my mother on a June night in 1997, and when I woke up, she was gone. That was it. I think sometimes it was better that way, to have our last moment be a routine farewell. Her throat simply closed in the middle of the night, a reaction to medication she was taking to fight against her bipolar disorder. Sometimes it isn't what we're battling that takes us, but simply the battle itself. Days before she died, she got to watch my brother, her oldest son, graduate from college. It seemed fitting, to go out on the heels of a celebration. A few months before we buried my mother, a casket was carried through Brooklyn, the notorious B.I.G.'s body inside, and here is a myth I like to imagine about that day, a line of rappers watching his funeral with their hands out, trading in their street-honed rhymes and still-cocked guns for a shiny jumpsuit, perhaps a pile of chains. A stack of money with the promise of more to come. And no rapper was ever killed again, and every hood danced in the streets for two whole decades, every song dipped in a sweet samples that our mothers learned from their mothers. It's a lie, of course. But 1997 was, for me, a year of far-off myths that I wanted to come to life. I dreamed myself into an emotional survival that I wasn't afforded the opportunity to live in my waking hours. To have lost a beloved rapper first was a sad but gentle blessing. 
I was 13 years old and familiar enough with death to have felt its impact, but the loss of Biggie felt different, even more than the loss of Tupac just a few months earlier. If you happen to be alive in the Midwest in the mid-90s, equidistant from each coast, you got to enjoy mainstream rap at its sharpest and most complete rise, without the biases that engulfed the coasts at the time. After the notorious B.I.G. was murdered in March of 1997, it felt like the ride was over. It briefly felt like perhaps the peak had been reached, and then came the blood and the funerals, and now the whole genre was on time out, tearing itself apart at the seams. I remember a brief moment where my brothers and I had to become secretive about our rap intake, our parents growing concerned about the violence of it all. It felt a little heavier to rap along to songs about guns and death. My mother began to eavesdrop on the music I was taking in, cutting eyes at anything with a black and white striped parental advisory sticker on it. I was her youngest child and it was still the spring. She did not yet know that she would be gone. Mo Money, Mo Problems, the Diana Ross sampled hit from the notorious B.I.G.'s posthumous album Life After Death, was released as a single two days after my mother's funeral. It was my first time hearing it on the radio. Not just a single radio, but every radio. It spilled out of cars, onto basketball courts, people danced to it in parking lots after the sunset. The song sampled I'm Coming Out, an anthemic 1980s disco soul hit that arrived before I was born but existed in familiar homes in the years after, playing in the hood, or at the cookout, or anywhere you could find space for black people to dance. Mo Money, Mo Problems was the first time I considered the true work of the sample, to call us all back to something familiar, in hopes that we might ignore all that is falling apart outside. The music video for the song came out shortly after the single. I watched it premiere on BET one day on a break from summer revelry. The visuals are a celebration. Mace and Puff Daddy dancing, cloaked in shiny suits, and even with the ghost of Biggie hovering thick over the song, they laughed, swayed arm in arm, levitated underneath the face of their dead friend. With that, a new gate opened. The so-called shiny suit era. The commercialization of hip-hop, taken to an extreme. The party that never stopped. Puff Daddy on every single, blinding jewelry in every video, songs drowning in shameless soul and pop samples covering the top of the charts, gold albums for any MC who stepped in the booth. It began with Puff Daddy and Bad Boy Records, of course, but like all successful trends, it spread. It would be a lie to say that all of the music that was produced during this period was good. The results weren't always ideal, MCs like Mike Geronimo and Nas, who weren't organically in the shiny suit lane, attempted to venture in and found themselves clumsy and out of place. Still, rap was at its most commercially accessible after a brief and dark holding period, and I remember being thankful. Drinking in every bit of excess from a small TV screen in Ohio, feeling like both rap and my life hadn't managed to change much at all, despite the whole left in the genre, despite the whole left in my childhood home. At its inception, what made punk rock great in the face of incredible odds was the general idea that anyone could do it. It wasn't about making great music, it was about getting free. This isn't just something that Puff Daddy understood. Big Pun understood it while dancing in the Still Not A Player video. Missy Elliott understood it while spending the late 90s giving us new ways to see, hear, and feel. Big timers understood it when they realized that they had no business rapping, but did it anyway. Nelly understood it while becoming a Midwest success story, an MC who still sounds exactly like where he's from and doesn't apologize for it, 
Cameron understood it in 2003 while freestyling on Rap City, counting hundreds of dollars. This, too, is a response to grief. Covering yourself in the spoils of your survival and making music that sent people dancing in the streets again. What I took away from 1997 wasn't how much I'd lost, though that burden was mighty. I remembered the songs my mother loved once, repurposed for my own pleasures, and this made it feel like she had never left. The shiny suit era, for all of its detractors, was a gift in that summer and beyond. A small light out of the loneliness that had found its way to me. In New Orleans, the people dance on caskets. They cut the body loose while the funeral rolls slow down a street. Onlookers join in and celebrate the life of the deceased, whether they know them or not. The band plays loud and long into the hot night, and the line of dancing people grows and grows. I watched this once when I was young, in 2002, a few years after my mother's passing, when I'd learned to move on. People, covered in sweat, both crying and yelling out in joy. Strangers hugging each other, and singing along to whatever tune the band saw fit to carry us home with. It made me reconsider the true purpose of a funeral. To see it, instead, as something that makes death memorable for those still living, something less fearful to sit in. A way to show the dead that we'll be alright, that we can go on without them just fine. After Katrina, when I came back to the city for the first time in a couple of years, there were bodies floating on the water. People were searching for their loved ones. After a couple more days, caskets, unearthed by the flood's ferocity, began floating through the streets. It was haunting, the unburied floating next to the once buried, both home and far from home, all at once. On my last day there, a man on some higher ground took out his horn and began to play while a few caskets, some turned sideways and empty, floated below us. A few people, weary and sad, started to clap slowly along, on beat. We make our own music to celebrate our dead where we must. I'm saying that I wish I knew what joys could be unlocked by tragedy before my mother died, but I'm thankful to have learned it shortly after she was gone. No brass band played for her as she was taken into the cemetery, no dance spilled out in her name. But in the summer of 1997, I learned what it is to feel someone everywhere. On the radio, every time I heard Mo Money, Mo Problems, I would think of how it might just have been the one rap song that my mother would have given allowance to. How she might have smiled and swayed at the familiarity of Diana Ross for long enough to ignore the lyrics. The gloss and shine of the era wasn't just for the suits and the sound. It was all a distraction. A small and delightful manipulation. The only way that rap could have survived after being declared dead under a hail of bullets. It was all a trick to pull our eyes away, and it did, for me. And, look, I am not saying that the mass commercialization of rap music saved the genre or saved lives. It had vast drawbacks, some of them still being felt today. Shifts in production and marketing that started to water down the genre then haven't really stopped, leading to a current day market where there are, quite literally, too many rappers. But I wouldn't take it back. It was what I needed in the moment, and still what I need now. The thing about grief is that it never truly leaves. From the moment it enters you, it becomes something you are always getting over. I will take healing in whatever form I can, and I heard my mother's voice singing underneath that music. I heard her slowly making her way back home. The thing that I can't promise is that heaven exists. I like to hope that it does, 
despite growing less and less connected to an idea of a higher power with each year. My mother died without knowing that death was coming for her, and I like to imagine her somewhere comfortable, a place where she can make peace with that. Selfishly, and more than anything else, I'd like to see her again, whatever seeing in the afterlife might look like. I'd love to sit across from her and hear her laugh at something, anything. I'd like to tell her about the summer of 1997 while someone sits behind us and plays a horn, slow and beautiful. I'd like to tell her about how I went outside for the first time two days after we covered her casket in dirt and heard the notes to a song she could sing along to. I'd like to tell her that I played basketball late into the night that summer, with the words to that song fresh on my tongue. That the radio played rap again, even in the suburbs that I hated. I'd like to tell her that I did not cry at the funeral, but I didn't dance either. Not until weeks later, when I finally let go and flailed my limbs to the radio behind a closed bedroom door, crying and singing, feeling myself get closer and closer to freedom with every unhinged movement. You should have seen me, I'd tell her in our new and clean heaven. You should have seen me. I did, she'd say. I always did. Nina Simone was very black. In the song Pirate Jenny, originally from 1928's The Three Penny Opera, a maid named Jenny, who works at a cheap hotel in London, plays out a fantasy in which she gets revenge on the townspeople who have treated her so poorly. A pirate ship, with fifty cannons, eight black sails, and a skull on its masthead, rolls into the harbour and fires on the city, destroying every building except the hotel. The pirates walk ashore, into the ruins of the city, and put all of the townspeople in chains. Upon presenting all of the chained townspeople to Jenny, she orders the pirates to kill them, before sailing away with the pirates to New Land. I first heard Pirate Jenny's song by Nina Simone when I was 12 years old. The record, from 1964's Nina Simone in Concert, spun in the living room of my childhood home while I played on the floor. In Nina's version, Jenny works at a flop house in South Carolina. She watches the pirate ship grow closer, larger, out of her window. For years, this was the only version I knew. In the world Nina Simone builds around the song, the already harrowing tale takes on a new, more terrifying life. In hearing it for the first time, with the active imagination that comes with childhood, I could see the black ship through the walls. I could hear the chains locked around the arms and legs of the townspeople. I could hear their cries for mercy before death. I could see Jenny, standing tall on the black ship as it drifted away, sails raised high. I can only imagine that I still find Simone's version of the song to be so jarring because Nina Simone knew well that black people have a different relationship with boats, with chains, with the South, with freedom and the haunting that comes with not having it. Pirate Jenny was my introduction to Nina Simone, and it has informed how I have chased after her work ever since. Nina Simone opens her mouth and an entire history is built before us, where there is nowhere for anyone to hide from the truth as she has lived it. I view her now much like I did as a child, when I picked up the record cover to see the woman behind the voice. Nina Simone, of dark skin and a nose much like my own, never afraid. I have been thinking a lot lately about how black people have to hold on to our stories, or tell them for ourselves. I have been thinking about how I learned to write, to tell the stories I have, largely at the feet of black women who then became ghosts, ghosts by death, or ghosts by erasure of their living contributions, and sometimes both. I think of Nina Simone's legacy, and I see the legacy of so many black women I know, who have had their work reduced by all of the hands that are not their own. 
Today, movements are stolen and repackaged with faces America finds more palatable. Hashtags and viral memes are created by black girls and women who do not profit from their enduring popularity, Peaches Monroe, the originator of On Fleek, and April Rain, who created hashtag Oscars So White, have had to fight for the minimal credit they've received. Meanwhile, the damn Daniel kid ends up on Ellen after a week. I have always held the legacy of Nina Simone close, because I know how easily it could be taken from me and served back to America as something more pleasing. It is easy to be black and non-confrontational if nothing is on fire, and so it has never been easy to be black and non-confrontational. The silence may reward you briefly, but it always comes at the risk of something greater, your safety, your family, how the world sets its eyes upon you and everyone you love. When you look like Nina Simone looked in the 1960s, dark, with an afro piled high on your head, the confrontation will find you. It will inform your existence and the way you move through the world. Nina Simone sang songs of protest even when she wasn't singing songs of protest. Every song was a plea to be seen through that which was burning around her. I say burning, and mean that Nina Simone wrote songs while churches were being blown from their foundations. I mean that I listened to her sing her version of Baltimore in a summer when the internet argued about the value of property and the value of a man's spine, the song arriving just in time for a new, burning generation. Ain't it hard just to live? Just to live. Zoe Saldana is, in my opinion, a fine actress. The kind of actress who I will not rush out to see, but if I am at a movie and she is in it, I don't feel as though her performance is distracting. When I saw the trailer for Nina, the Nina Simone biopic that was released in 2016 before, I shared a feeling of disappointment with many others. It was more jarring for some, myself included, because it seemed, for a time, that this idea had been scrapped. The initial announcement of the film's concept, in 2012, was not well received, and Nina Simone's family did not give the film their blessing. To have the trailer arrive at all seemed to be a small injustice, one that visibly upset the Simone estate. The trailer portrays Simone, of course, as a mess, during a period when her life was at its most out of control, needing to be pulled back from the brink of destruction by a man. This is how it goes for women on screens in America, a loss of control driven by anger, or complication, followed by a man to help them regain the control that they have lost. In the trailer, we see Saldana in very obvious makeup used to darken her skin. She has a nose that looks very different from her own, and a kinky afro wig. This is the Nina Simone that is being presented to America now, cliched and predictably polished. I came of age during a time when I was constantly reminded of the darkness of my skin, the width of my nose, the size of my lips. I am similar to Nina Simone in this way. When I chose to take up jazz at 13, driven in part by Nina's influence, my white jazz teacher told me that my lips were too big to play trumpet. This led to my father marching into his office with record after record of large-lipped black trumpet players, spreading them all out on his desk while I sat in a corner and watched. Louis Armstrong, Freddie Hubbard, Mercer Ellington, my father, born in the era of Nina Simone's most confrontational living, standing over the desk of a white man who tried to tell his son that he didn't belong. America, so frequently, is excited about the stories of black people but not the black people themselves. Everything is a Martin Luther King Jr. quote, or a march where no one was beaten or killed. This is why the telling of our own stories has always been important. The idea of black folklore as community is still how we connect to our past, 
locking in on our heroes and making them larger than life. This is, in many ways, how we make our own films. I tell the story of my father walking into my jazz teacher's office in a place other than here, perhaps on a hot porch at the end of a long summer. In that version, my father storms into the room and pulls out a Miles Davis record. He puts it on, pulls a trumpet from the sky, and plays along with every note. When the record dies down, he places the trumpet on the teacher's desk, and walks out of the room with me on his shoulders. In any version of the story I tell, he is driven to do loud things, to be the type of black that has to be loud in order to not vanish. When I see people talk about diversity in film rooms and writing rooms, I often see numbers and percentages, but not often very plain talk about what the repercussions are when no black people are present. Of the core team that created and brought Nina to life, there is only one black person. The film's co-star, David Ielowo, is one of the executive producers. Nina Simone's blackness, not just her politics rooted in it, but her aesthetic blackness, is not a footnote. The fact that no one in the room was able to point this out serves as this film's undoing before it is even released. Because Nina Simone unlocked a part of my imagination that I have always returned to, I hope the story of Nina Simone to be one that was larger than life, because that is what she has always been for me. I wanted to hear folklore, a story of a great black woman surviving violence through more violence, driven by her incredible gifts. Here is the story I hope we tell. Nina Simone's blackness didn't wash off at the end of a day. Nina Simone sang Sinner Man for 10 minutes in 1965, and the whole earth trembled. Nina Simone played the piano like she was cocking a gun. Nina Simone was dark, and beautiful, and her hair piled high to heaven. Nina Simone survived what she could of the civil rights era, and then got the fuck out. Nina Simone rode away on the troubled ocean, standing on the deck of a black ship, looking back while a whole country burned, swallowing itself. Blood Summer, in three parts. I, a black Jesus on stained glass. 16th Street and the necessity of the black church. It is only when we are within the walls of our churches that we are holy ourselves, that we keep alive a sense of our personalities in relation to the total world in which we live. Richard Wright The black churches where I come from are still standing. Most of them around my old neighborhood are toying with the idea of collapse, worn down by the type of hard use that only a black church can endure. The foundations lean from years of the stomp, the clap, the holler. Paint is peeling back from the walls where a picture of black Jesus hangs, often crooked, but still smiling. I say this to point out that I don't know what a church on fire looks like. I've never had to walk past what used to be a black church and see a pile of smoldering bricks, or smell the wood still burning from whatever is left of the old piano. I get to write about the black church without knowing a neighborhood afraid to go to one. Like most people, when I think of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, I think of Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Denise McNair. I think of the 22 injured, some who never fully recovered from their injuries. I think of Reverend John Cross Jr., who in 2001 recalled how the girls' bodies were found, stacked on top of each other, clinging to each other for dear life. Though the church holds ceremonies for our dead, no one goes to church to die. I know that which makes the black church a sacred thing also makes it a thing that is feared. The African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME, was founded by Reverend Richard Allen in 1816 Philadelphia, formed from black Methodist congregations along the Atlantic, 
eager for independence from white Methodists. Still, during America's decades of slavery, nothing shook white slave owners more than black religious meetings. Prayer meetings and religious movements of slaves were closely watched by slave owners, some slaves were whipped if they prayed to Jesus. After emancipation, black Americans in the South built sanctuaries of their own as a way to find refuge in a country that still didn't feel like the promised land. The greatest mission of the black church, historically, has been to care for the spiritual needs of black people, with the understanding that since the inception of the American church, the spiritual needs of black people have been assigned a different tone, a different urgency. It is the difference in looking out on a land that you believe is yours, and a land that you were taken to, forced to build. During the civil rights era, black churches served as holy ground. A place where black organizers could meet, strategize, pray, and give thanks. The organization of black resistance has always sparked white fear, never greater than when violent bigots see a building where black people are praying to the same God that they do, and doing it with so much fire, so little worry. When a place like this also becomes a base of power for social and political movement, it becomes a target. Taylor Branch, a historian of the civil rights movement, once estimated that from 1954 to 1968, there was a church bombed almost every week. During the Freedom Summer of 1964, it is estimated that a bombing happened every other day. The thing that we do on a day like this, where history arrives and reminds us of who it is buried, is that we look back and think about turning points. How a monumental day of violence changed everything that came after it. What hurts me the most is that we don't get to do that here. We do get to mourn Addie Mae, Cynthia, Carol, and Denise in the best way that we can. We do get to reflect on what it means to live in a world where little girls can get dressed up to go to church and not make it out alive. But there isn't the satisfaction of knowing that we live in a world where this could never happen again. In the mid-90s, 59 black churches burned, mostly in the South, leading then-President Bill Clinton to sign the Church Arson Prevention Act. But churches still burned. The black church was still a target. In the summer of 2015, Dylan Roof walked into the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston and unloaded a handgun. In the days following, six black churches were damaged or destroyed. I imagine this to feel like the whip being taken to the back of any black community that dares pray to the same Jesus as its white counterparts. When the fear of death is omnipresent, when it has followed you into houses of worship for as long as you've known how to say a prayer, praying becomes an act of immense urgency. To be black and know how sacred this is, to see a whole history of your sanctuaries burned to the ground, or covered in the blood of your brothers and sisters, it demands you to give yourself over to a loud and eager prayer. One that echoes through an entire week, until you are called back again. The black church, where we can do this without apology, without the politeness of anxiety. Yes, be loud, and free, and rattle the walls with song. Yes, clap, and stomp, and sweat on whomever you must. Yes, leave baptized and clean. Yes, survive another week and pray for another. When the 16th Street Baptist Church was rebuilt and reopened in 1964, it did so with a new stained glass window. The Wales window depicts a black Christ with his arms outstretched, his right arm pushing away injustice, his left arm extended in an offering of forgiveness. There is a replica of this window in a church near my old neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio. It is said to be inspired by a verse from the Gospel of Matthew, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, 
you did it to me. I think about the image often, though not of the black Christ. I think about that expectation, to hold off injustice with one arm while still consistently offering forgiveness with the other. I think about how often that is what blackness in America amounts to. Even when grandmothers are burying their children, and their children's children. What forgiveness looks like when there are still churches being blown apart, still black bodies who arrived to pray, and ended up murdered. When the right arm is reaching into a fire to push away decades of injustice that still presents itself, how long before the whole body is engulfed in flames? I don't know what a community does when it has no more forgiveness left, or when it knows what forgiveness in this age truly means. I don't know how a country can forgive itself for the deaths of those four sweet girls in 1963, just as I don't know how it can forgive itself for the consistent assault on black sanctuaries ever since. Still, as thankful as I am to come from hands that still reach out for forgiveness, I am even more thankful to come from a people who know the necessity of rebuilding. Who know what a church does, know how to drink all they can from it, and refuse to let it be torn from them. 2. Another Rope, A Newer City The Legacy of Ida B. Wells and the Death of Sandra Bland Our country's national crime is lynching. It is not the creature of an hour, the sudden outburst of uncontrolled fury, or the unspeakable brutality of an insane mob. Ida B. Wells What makes the dead body worthwhile is that it was once living. It is true that in every instance of black death, we adorn the dead body with its accomplishments. We name the people who loved the person who was once alive. We look for the pictures where they once smiled into the sun, their camera turned on their own face. And we do this, consistently and loudly, because we have to. Because we have seen enough death to know what untruths feed on a body at rest. I say this to illustrate the point that I do not want to talk about Sandra Bland getting her dream job, or the joy that seemed to fill her life before she lost it. I want to speak plainly about the hanging of black bodies from anything in this country strong enough to hold them. It took three men to remove Ida B. Wells from a train car in 1884, and for his trouble, one of them got her teeth marks in his arm. She should have never been asked to move from her seat to the smoking car of the train and she knew this. She measured the fight and took it on. This is my favorite story about Ida B. Wells' life. It's the one that will show up first when you click on a Google Doodle, and I tell it to someone every year on the day of her birth. It makes sense to tell the story every July 16th. I like to think that Ida B. Wells always knew what we see so clearly now. When black men die, they live on, almost forever. When black women vanish, they often simply vanish. When enough outlets tell you that your life is an exercise in rehearsing invisibility, when you become invisible, it just seems like you're performing the grand closing act. I admire the work of Ida B. Wells, of course. But more than that, I admire her consistent refusal of silence. It is present in all of us, I believe. But I become most inspired when I see it in black women. I come from a long line of black women who spoke, who moved with authority, direct descendants of the School of Wells. It took two men to arrest Sandra Bland on the side of a road last week. One was holding her firm to the ground while she cried out in pain and, perhaps, fear. We are to believe that she assaulted one of the men, though we do not see it. We so rarely do. We are to believe that Sandra Bland was hanged three days later, though we are not clear on how her body was fixed to a metal bar, or what was used to hang it. But we are to believe that it hanged, nonetheless. 
We are to believe that this was due to a traffic stop. We are to believe that she was planning a bright future. We are to know that it will not exist. It is impossible to even mention America's history of lynching without mentioning the woman who fought most fervently to dismantle it at a time when men were being dragged from their homes and hanged for not paying debts or being too drunk in public places. Or, in other cases, for displeasing law enforcement. There is sacrifice in that. In being a black woman who fights and is alive at any time in this country's history is a sacrifice. It can still get you a death sentence, though the knife is fashioned differently. When Ida B. Wells couldn't go home to Philadelphia, she fought in Chicago. When the mobs came for her in Chicago, she went to England. And like so many black women, she fought and lived and loved a family and built a home and rode and pushed to the front when the front did not want her there. And she did not want to stop the fight until more black women had room of their own, until black men stopped being hanged from trees. But Ida B. Wells died an unceremonious death in 1931 and we are to believe that Sandra Bland hanged from a jail cell on a summer day in 2015. It was the failure of kidneys that took Wells at age 68, not any of the violent mobs, their wetted teeth shining against the moon. I write about Wells today, how much she hated the rope, the black bodies left hanging in the South. And I write about Sandra Bland today, the all-too-familiar death, the dead body that this country has come to know the one that we write about even when we are not writing about it. And my hands can't help but shake. I don't know anything more about Sandra Bland than anyone else, other than the fact that I want her life to be one that is not forgotten. I want us to honor the living black women who fight and I want us to fight for the black women who no longer have the honor of living. I want us to respect the legacies that were remarkable by virtue of boundary pushing and I want us to respect the legacies that were remarkable by virtue of being alive and loved. I want these statements to not be brave, or unique. I want them to be expected. 3. On Black Grandmothers and the Art of Dying on Your Own Terms During the time in my life when my grandmother was still living and wholly present, I rarely recall her smelling of anything other than smoke. She smoked more cigarettes, a brand that currently can only be purchased online, and, I'm told, at a few corner stores in the Florida Panhandle. More cigarettes were mostly notable because they used brown paper to wrap the tobacco instead of the traditional white paper that most cigarettes use. My grandmother seemed to always have her thin brown fingers wrapped around a stick of thin brown paper, so often that on some days it seemed like the smoke was rising from her hands all on its own. If she needed to get into her purse for any reason, she often had to sift through a graveyard of emptied red and green packs of cigarettes, cursing under her breath the whole time. The smell of them, though, was distinct. I had no language for it as a child, sitting outside of her room and breathing it in while watching her watch supermarket sweep in the evening, or watching her watch some soap opera during the summer days when school was out. I found myself not even having language for it as it lingered on my clothing after a good hug. It wasn't until years later, while taking a road trip through the South in my early twenties, that I could name it. In South Carolina, after a hard rain, I walked through an old plantation and it was the smell descending from the trees after they made room for the storm. A humble attempt at forgiveness. Almost every black grandmother I know smokes. I once hugged a friend's grandmother while she was holding a cigarette, and it burned a mark onto my t-shirt. After which she took a long drag, looked me up and down and said, you gotta watch that, honey. I have known some who put out their cigarettes, look down at them with disgust, and say, I swear, I'm gonna quit one of these days, 
which we understand to mean, I swear, I'm gonna die one of these days. My particular black generation is the one who, if they are lucky, have two, or more, in some cases, generations of living women that survive despite being pressed up against all manner of relentless tragedy. It's why we laugh at the stories of the grandmother who takes no shit, but we know not to laugh too long. It is the unspoken fear, the unspoken knowledge of what many of these women gave. We know that if the officer's gun didn't kill them, and poverty's hunger didn't kill them, and the violence of marginalized and silenced black men didn't kill them, there is no measure of swallowed smoke that will shake them free of the earth quickly and easily. There is pretty much no violence in this country that can be divorced from this country's history. It is an uneasy conversation to approach, especially now, as we are asked to behave in the midst of another set of black bodies left hollow. The Southern Black Church has always been a battleground in this history of violence. Most notably, of course, during the Freedom Summer of 1964, but even beyond. The Church, if we are to believe that it still exists for this purpose, is a space of ultimate humbling and vulnerability. In the South, the Black Church is also a place of fear. To attack the innocent where they feel most secure is cowardly, of course, but it is also a reminder. There is no safety from this. There will be no reprieve from the sickness that spreads and calls people to take up this level of violence. There will be no calm before the storm. There will only be the storm, and then another, louder storm. It will follow you to your homes, press itself between your sleeping children, hang over your shoulders at work, and yes, it will walk into your church, pray to the same God as you do, and then stand up and open fire. There is no way to talk about this without talking about the history of instilling fear in black people in this country. Without closing our eyes and feeling the warmth from a flaming cross. Or smelling a wet body, limp and descending from a southern plantation tree. The weight of this tragedy hung over me on the day after the Charleston shooting. I slept two restless hours in an Ohio hotel, spending most of my time rolling over to scroll through news feeds and news stories. I mostly thought of grandmothers. I thought of the grandmother who told her five-year-old granddaughter to play dead so that the killer would pass her over. So that she might live long enough to see her name grow fresh in the mouth of someone she loves. It is impossible for me to imagine that this is the world we live in. One where black girls must learn to play dead before they learn to play the dozens. But it is not impossible for me to imagine what her grandmother has lived through. What she knew that we did not. Survival is truly a language in which the black matriarch is fluent. Much like this country's violence, there is no survival in this country that can be divorced from this country's history. A grandmother who has maybe stared down death more than once, passing that burden onto the child of her child. I don't know if there is a name for what it is when you are moved to praise something as impossibly sad as this. I don't know if it can be found in a church, even as a little girl is not among the dead inside of it. I imagine that I am writing this because I don't know these answers. I think of this child growing up and knowing what it is to escape death. Wrapping herself in the trauma of that? Knowing at such a young age that to be a black woman in America is, in a way, to feel like you will survive until you decide to stop surviving. But, the black people who pray still must pray. In a good black church, all manner of sweat, holler, and joy lives in the walls. I'm not sure what it is to set foot in a place of worship where you saw members of your community fighting against an inevitable death. I imagine that to be impossible. I prayed last night in a hotel bathroom. Like many of us, 
nothing draws me to prayer quicker than desperation. Not knowing what to do with my hands, my heart, or my mind. Sometimes, I don't even know what I'm praying for. Last night, I think I prayed for a southern black church that didn't also smell of smoke, of cooked flesh. Where the memories weren't of burial. Where black children could fall asleep in the front row, their small bodies still, but breathing. My grandmother began to smoke more as she got older. When she moved to her own apartment, down the street from my childhood house, I'd visit and see empty packs of more cigarettes littering the table. Occasionally, when she'd tell me that she was thinking of quitting, I never knew if she meant the cigarettes. I'm not sure that she ever stopped, though I don't imagine she did. She died in the South, in Alabama. I don't know what smell rises off of the trees there after a storm, but I like to imagine that it's the same smell that is rising in South Carolina today. The way I'd like to imagine it, our grandmothers are with us, even when they're not with us. Teaching us how to pray. Teaching us how to survive. August 9, 2014 It is early, and inside of an airplane sitting outside of the San Francisco airport, a mother is asking a person two seats ahead of me to switch seats, so that she can have a window seat for her son, and he looks at the world outside of this metal container that is dragging us back to somewhere in the waiting Midwest. I have this fear of heights, but I do find the appeal in looking out of windows during flights. In Oakland, where I spent the past five days reading poems in hotel rooms with friends that I only get to see a couple times a year. Two nights ago, one of them ran up to the roof of the hotel at night and looked over, everything below was an impossible darkness. It's that kind of height I find myself uncomfortable with. Some would tell me not a fear of heights so much as a fear of falling. Planes work if you can manage to not think of the machinery. The way I walk into a store and buy what my body is demanding without thinking of the labor that carried the product to that moment. But, this mother wants her son to understand the world from this height and the person in the window seat she wants isn't moving. So she is loud now, shouting in the name of her child, who also isn't moving, and who seems preoccupied with a small screen in front of him, where two cartoon characters are wrestling each other over some treasure. I am thinking of what it must be like to not have a desire to get close to heaven at a time like this. A time when there is just a hint of morning coloring the sky as the waning darkness fights against it, making it so that everything above is the color of blood pushing its way across a dark surface. This is the part of the flight I live for, being pulled into the impossible beauty above and feeling like I could touch it if I wanted to. I'm not particularly excited about going back home today, though I do miss it. The dying summer and covering the Midwest in a kind of heat that doesn't afford anyone the mercy of Oakland's proximity to water. It is one thing to love where you're from and miss it, and another to fall in love somewhere else and then have to pull away. When the mother gives up on the person two seats ahead of me, she makes eye contact with me and my precious window seat. I pretend to not notice, nodding my head along to imagined music coming out of my detached headphones. But I'm a poor actor, and have no luck convincing her of my being oblivious to her suffering. Standing over me, she pleads, explaining that her son has never even been on a plane before, though has loved watching them from below. And she wants him to have a window seat so that he'll be maybe be less afraid. And I know that I have been afraid and found comfort in seeing. In the turning of my head to that which I fear. And so I surrender my seat and I watch the eager mother carry her son in her arms, to that which she thinks will make him whole. I push myself into an aisle seat and prepare for the long flight home, considering that perhaps life is too short for fear. There is always going to be something outside, 
waiting to kill us all. Fear in two winters. When people squint at my name on something in front of them and then ask where I'm from, I tell them Columbus, Ohio. When they look again and then, perhaps more urgently, ask where my parents are from, I tell them New York, smiling more slightly. Occasionally, I'll get a person who asks where their parents were from, and I humor that as well. No one has ever gone beyond two generations before me, but I look forward to the day where it all plays out, me in line at the bank, or at a deli, someone attempting to trace my lineage to a place they feel makes sense. Me, eventually saying, well, I'd imagine Africa came into play at some point, but now I'm here, so who can say really? What people are asking in this exercise is never about where I'm from. The question they're asking is why doesn't your name fit comfortably in my mouth? And we both understand what this is asking, and my toying with the asker usually doesn't win me any points. The answer they are digging for is less exciting, my parents converted to Islam in the 1970s, when many young black American-born New Yorkers found their way to the religion. A desire for reconnecting their roots to something that felt more like home than Christianity. My father, before Islam, was Catholic, though I'm not sure of my mother's religion. They took new names. The name Abdurraqib means servant of the observer in Arabic. It is hard, even now, for people to imagine that any Muslim people are not people who came here from another country. In the mosque I went to as a child, I felt most comfortable because I didn't have to repeat my name to anyone I spoke it to, but I did have to apologize for my flimsy Arabic, or my distance from tradition. In this way, I was often too Muslim for one world, but too steeped in American culture for another. But the person who has to prepare themselves to yell out my coffee shop order as a line grows, snaking behind me, is asking where my parents are from. So they are asking how I got a name like this. So, today, I simply say, it's Arabic. The distance between curiosity and fear is tragically short. They are, like sleep and death, within the same family, a quick nudge pushing one directly into the other. Because it has been so long, what people maybe don't remember about Muslims before September 11th is that there was always curiosity that felt like it could take a sharp turn into fear at any minute. My freshman year of high school, I found myself pressured by teachers and administration to come to school without my kufi, the traditional male head covering. I was told it was a distraction, as it sometimes led to other students snatching it off and running through the halls with it. The school attempted to lean on its no-hats policy, which caused my father to come into the office, with Islamic texts by his side. This was in the late 90s, when a public school surely should have had to reckon with students of different faiths before, but seemed unequipped to do so. When they were met with resistance, when it was begrudgingly decided that I could still wear my kufi to school, the curiosity shift happened. The leap from fear to anger can be even shorter, particularly when people feel the need to defend otherwise abhorrent actions. On the morning of September 11, 2001, I woke up in my freshman college dorm and started to walk down the hallway. It was my new friend Brittany's birthday. In the early stage of college, finding and clinging to new friends is vital. Brittany played volleyball and I played soccer, so our teams had to show up to campus early to train. She was from a small town in Ohio, telling me on our second night at school that she had only ever seen a few black people in her life. This was casual, not something said while sitting, fascinated in my presence. She would talk to me about her town and all of its moral grayness. When you are not surrounded by any black people, 
and therefore not directly threatened by their presence, it becomes harder to justify seeing black people as threatening when you encounter them in real life. Brittany and I got along because we were both escaping, like most people on our small, suburban campus. We bonded in the fact that we weren't escaping things that were especially harmful to us. All of our siblings had gone to college. Our parents supported our dreams. We were two athletes, playing sports in college. Brittany simply wanted to escape the mundane of her small hometown. And I wanted to escape what I, at the time, imagined as a strict Muslim household. One that restricted my pleasures, my ability to fully dance into my rapidly changing personality. With me, freedom was emotional, and mental, not tied to geography. My father's house was a 10-minute drive from our college's campus. And yet, I lived in a dorm. On the top bunk that I jumped off of on September 11th to start down the hall to Brittany's room. I got her a card and a small bag of candy that she liked. As I walked that morning, I noticed all of the doors in the hallway were swung open, and people were sitting at the edges of their beds, unusual for a Tuesday. In one room, a boy on the baseball team was holding his crying girlfriend. In another, someone on the phone with their mother, asking to be told that everything was going to be okay. When I got to Brittany's room, she was sitting on the floor. We watched the second plane hit the building together. We watched the smoke swallow the sky. We watched, as the people jumped, and jumped, and jumped. By the time I got to college, I had largely stopped practicing Islam. I still participated in Ramadan, the act of fasting for 30 days in an attempt to cleanse the mind, body, and spirit. I relied on that, and the structure it provided. I stopped wearing a kufi, stopped praying daily, unless I was visiting home. I spoke little to no Arabic, which I was always self-conscious about doing anyway. It felt easier this way, fitting in without having to offer explainers. I was making the curious parts of myself invisible in the hopes that curiosity never turned to fear. When I look back now, I find it amazing that I didn't imagine the path that the September 11th attacks would set us down, and how that path would open up the door to global violences against Muslims. The greatest emotional impact on Americans toward American Muslims is that it took curiosity out of the timeline. There was now only fear, turning rapidly to anger. In an age before rapidly updating social media sites, I would read about attacks on Muslims in schoolyards or mosques being set on fire, sometimes days after it happened. I would worry about my father, going to work in a state building every day. And my sister, studying in Madison, Wisconsin. Beyond that, I felt oddly divorced from it all. As if, when I stopped answering the calls to prayer, I inherited a type of safety. By the end of September, when all of the reports and findings about the background of the attackers were being rolled out, news reports would have large banners at the bottom asking things like, does Islam hate US? And when professors called my Arabic name out in class, it was easy to imagine the fresh and sharp stares I got as something else, something less burning. The thing about praying five times a day is that it gives you five distinct opportunities to talk to God. To bow and ask for forgiveness, even if you're only returning after an hour. I was bad at sticking to a prayer schedule as a child. When you are young, and everything outside is beckoning, it's hard to not look at that which brings you inside as a task and nothing else. But I appreciated the idea and routine of it, nonetheless. Even when it didn't feel useful, the persistence of bringing myself before some higher power and asking to be made clean, again and again.
in the months after September 11, 2001, I found a quiet spot on campus to pray Maghreb prayer and almost every evening. Maghreb, the sun prayer, was the only one my family consistently made together. It worked out, logistically, Maghreb is made at sunset, so during most times of the year, it was made at a time when my entire family was home. There's something mythical and perfect about it, about praying the sun into its resting place every night, waking up and getting to rise with it in the morning. I was the only Muslim on my college's campus. I would pray in a room alone, and then ask forgiveness. I found myself, often, foolishly praying for the country's mercy, as if I could push my back up against a door that was already being broken down from the outside. Brittany went home for winter break, back to her town where there were no black people and certainly no Muslims. When we came back to school in January, she barely spoke to me. We faded into the background of each other's lives. Some things, it seems, are inescapable. On the day the new president signs an executive order banning refugees from countries that have primarily Muslim populations, I step out of my car and head to Terminal 4 at the John F. Kennedy International Airport. It is still cold, and the sun isn't out. The sun hasn't been out much since the new president was inaugurated eight days ago. It came out briefly on the East Coast the other day, just long enough to see what it had been missing. I began to wonder if someone I love prayed the sun into its resting place and forgot to wish it back. On the way here, I stopped to get tea and someone asked about my name, where it came from, where my family is from. I was patient this time. I explained, thinking of the friends I had accumulated since college, Muslims with families that, unlike mine, were refugees from some of the countries on the list of places that America was now banning refugees from. People with loved ones from these countries, not all of them citizens. People who were afraid, wondering if they should sever their own ties with this newer, even sharper America. At JFK a white woman is holding a sign that says we are all Muslims and I appreciate the messaging, but I don't know that it lands for me when thinking about the future dead that might pile up along some borders while trying to flee some state-manufactured terror. I consider how little I feel Muslim today, even less than I did in college. I haven't stepped into a mosque in five years. My name, the only thing tethering me to people's idea of what Islam is. But I am afraid today, as I was in the winter of 2001. This protest is spontaneous. The executive order was signed last night, and when word began to spread that there were travelers, some citizens, being detained in airports, people took to the streets. Lawyers pushed themselves into airport fast food joints, picking up the Wi-Fi signals so that they could start to do work to get detained people free. It is a comforting and uniting protest, one that isn't rooted in much shared ideology beyond people simply being angry. One man next to me tells me that he didn't vote at all, but he was pissed off when he read the news this morning. You just can't cross a moral line like that, he said, in a thick New York accent. Fuck that guy. The Statue of Liberty is right over there. It is eight days into this new and violent empire that is building upon a legacy of violent empires before it, and I have finally stopped trying to tell myself that everything is going to be all right. There is no retaliation like American retaliation, for it is long, drawn out, and willing to strike relentlessly, regardless of the damage it has done. September 11th is used as a tithe in our church of brutality, even 15 years and endless bombs down the road. The US ignored the Geneva Convention, raping, sodomizing, and torturing prisoners of war at their black site bases around the world, 
The military bombed wedding parties consisting mostly of women and children in Iraq at Mukaradib, and in Afghanistan at Wek Bagtu and Daybala. Here, we are saying that we will tear your country apart, we will give birth to the terror within, and then we will leave you to drown in it. This feels, tonight, like a particularly immense type of evil. Real power, I am reminded, doesn't need a new reason to stop pretending to be what it actually is underneath. All of the old reasons are enough to seduce. On my phone, a Muslim friend texts me to ask how my family is. If any of them are in danger. I tell her no, that I am standing, now, in the city where my mother and father were born. There is no border that my living family can be pushed to the edges of, even though a country glares at our name and wishes otherwise. I still say Allahu Akbar often. It simply means God is greater in Arabic. In the rare times that I would be called to lead prayer in my home when I was younger, I would stumble through all of the Arabic without confidence, except for the ending of the prayer, when I would easily and proudly shout Allahu Akbar, the only Arabic that fit comfortably over my tongue. Now, it is associated with a call of terrorists before some vicious act is committed in the name of Allah. The perversion of it hasn't pulled me away. I still say it in praise, even when it doesn't fit a specific situation, or when something like Alhamdulillah, thank God, might be a better fit. I like the translation, mostly. Even though I don't pray, I still like the idea that there is a God and that they are greater. Than us, than this moment, than this wretched machinery that we're fighting against and sometimes losing. It is the last lifeboat of Islam that I find myself clinging to. As the protest tonight stretches long and hundreds more people stream into the terminal at JFK until it is overflowing and spilling out of every edge of geography. I think of how foolish I was, to once pray for a country's mercy, and how thankful I am that those prayers were not answered. How, through this resistance, we might find a freedom where no mercy is required. We might find a humanity that is not asking to be seen, but demanding instead. How we all pray for the wrong things sometimes, but somehow, God is greater. On Paris. Perhaps if you were once young and black, or young and brown, but definitely young and Muslim in the heart of a Midwestern city surrounded by corn fields, trees, whole stretches of land where you were feared. Perhaps then you would sneak out of a house, or take the money your father gave you for food or college textbooks, and you would go to see a live show wherever you could find a band playing some songs that you knew enough words to. You might find some other weirdos like you. The outcasts, the Muslim kids who also knew what it was to have a head covering torn from them in a crowded school hallway, the ones who knew what it was to both run into a fight and run away to survive. You might find a small corner and dance together, sing together, revel in being alive and imagining yourself, for a few hours, unfeared and unkillable. Having a place to belong is something that often works on a sliding scale. The urgency of owning a space with people who look like you and share some of your experience increases the further against the margins you are. Live music, even at its most unhealthy and potentially violent, has historically provided a small mercy for young people who found no mercy elsewhere. A live show was the first time, as a teenager in Columbus, Ohio, that I found a few other young Muslims who had the same relationship to music that I did. At an early fallout boy show at the basement, a venue in my hometown of Columbus that is, very literally, a basement, I first noticed them. Muslims who I noticed from school or Friday prayer at the mosque, camped out in the back of the venue. Ones who didn't grow up in a house like mine, where most music was accepted, or, at worst, 
tolerated. We connected through mutual passion for feeling most at home during a concert, or our family histories. How we all learned to sneak rap albums past our parents, the trick, back when parental advisory stickers were actually stickers, involved peeling the sticker off your cassette or CD before you made it back to your house. How our homes varied from understanding to fiercely strict, and how we still found ourselves at live shows with each other. Occasionally, we would travel to a concert in another Midwest city, Chicago or Detroit, and see more of the same. Teenage Muslim music fans who we connected with online at the dawn of social media, who shared our passion and our stories. These were also the spaces where I understood that my fears were not entirely unique. The ways that I felt about navigating the world were shared by others, the few of us drawn together by both our need to escape into music, and the things that drove us to the escape. I was a college freshman on a small Ohio campus in September 2001. A time where the word terrorism most loudly latched itself to my Arabic name, latched itself on the shoulders of my Muslim friends from Pakistan, Syria, Lebanon. I did not go outside often in that winter. When I did, it was to make the short trip to some cheap show, indie or punk rock, underground hip-hop. Wherever I knew I could see some of the other Muslim kids I knew, and we could sit in between songs, covered in sweat, and speak of our survival. In Islam, live music and concerts are a tricky thing. In many Muslim households, the act of going to a concert is seen as haram, or sinful. I knew young Muslims who would go to concerts only when they told their parents they would be elsewhere, and had others cover for them. This may never change. In 2015, I read about Muslim teenagers in Turkey and London, rushing to Justin Bieber concerts. Muslims at Coachella and Bonnaroo, basking in that small window of freedom, sinful as it may be. Hasn't that always been the way of it? We all choose our sins, and their measure. The ones we believe will render us unforgivable, and the ones that we will wash off with a morning prayer. This is something that I find particularly hard to ignore as we again look upon an act of terror that has overshadowed all other acts of terror. Even the ones that have spanned decades, or centuries. As we again discuss selective outrage. Rather, the merit of life, or what we do with how others choose to mourn. Most importantly, as we again ask questions of what Muslims around the world deserve and what they need to do. Then again, have we ever really stopped doing this? It is a luxury to be able to tear your gaze away from something, to only be made aware of old and consistent blood by a newer shedding of blood. It is a luxury to see some violence as terror and other violence as necessary. It is a luxury to be unafraid and analyze the very real fear of others. I know and understand all of this, and still, as I turned to Paris, even with my knowledge of the world's many horrors, I was particularly struck to read about the shootings that took place in a concert venue. Many concertgoers, mostly young, were gunned down while taking in an Eagles of Death Metal show. I considered the dead, how many among them may have gone out hoping for an escape from whatever particular evil was suffocating them. I considered how many may have been young Muslims. Then, as always, I considered all of the young Muslims still living. Historically, when people who identify as Muslim kill a large group of people who are assumed to be non-Muslim, the world wishes to see dead Muslim bodies in return. In America, men stand outside of mosques with guns. People urge others to violence against anyone who they believe to be Muslim. Worldwide, in response to this senseless violence, Muslims are assaulted, ostracized, and further misunderstood. 
I still hear and read stories about Muslims who navigate airports differently, aware of the discomfort that others have around them in that setting since September 11th. There are few things like being feared simply due to having a body. There is no way to easily come to terms with this. Those who fear you may wish that you simply make yourself small, if you refuse to disappear. This is how a simple, public space becomes something entirely unpleasant. This is how a place of release and joy becomes something you hold an arm's length away. It is hard for me to put these things together. Young Muslims around the world, afraid and eager to find a cleansing space. A concert venue, much like the ones where I felt most unafraid, covered in blood. A world, eager for revenge, people to hang their rage on. The idea of feeling most like yourself when watching live music seems small to some, I'm sure. I can only speak for how I found safety and comfort, while also considering how spaces of safety and comfort have become increasingly rare for young Muslims over the past 15 years. Attacks and intimidation at mosques aren't entirely surprising. Much like assaults on black churches, people will always come first for where you pray. But knowing what music, specifically live music, can do in these times, I worry about Muslims being afraid in those spaces. Or worse, being feared in those spaces. It is jarring, what we let fear do to each other, how we invent enemies and then make them so small that we are fine with wishing them dead. How we decide what safety is, how ours is only ours and must be gained at all costs. How we take that long coat of fear and throw it around the shoulders of anyone who doesn't look like us, or prays to another god. There is something about a dark corner crowded with your people, a song you know, and a night you can bookmark to reminisce on whenever the world is calling for the death of everyone you love. On the song Hurt Me Soul from Lupe Fiasco's classic 2006 debut album Food and Liquor, Lupe opens the track by muttering Estafurullah before the beat drops. Heard frequently in my childhood home, in a literal sense, it means I seek forgiveness from Allah. But what I always found interesting was how often it was used to express shame. To say I shouldn't have to do these things, but I don't know how else to survive. I imagine Lupe Fiasco, a Muslim making a living performing live music, understands this the way that I do. The shame that exists because of what we have to do in order to remain alive, be seen as human. I consider this while the smoke clears, and we watch young Muslims today do what we always watch young Muslims do in these situations. They plead with the world to be spared. They work tirelessly to show their humanity, show us all the acts of good they have done. They tell the world that they are not like the ones who have killed, as if the world itself, awash with blood, deserves this explanation from the innocent. When I see this now, it breaks my heart. In part, because I recall doing this myself, in the early 2000s, to anyone who would listen. But in part because I know that these are young people in the world, thrashing against what many of us did in our youth, while also coming to terms with their new life as a target. There is shame in this, absolutely. Though I'm not sure that the burden of it belongs on Muslims around the world. Yet, here, I still write about the living while so many continue to die. I write about music while bodies are prepared for burial. I write about fear from the safety of my apartment, and someone may call it brave. Me, a man who no longer bows to anything five times a day, who had pork just yesterday, who only speaks light Arabic when visiting his family, still writing about how I wish for Muslims, especially young Muslims, to be safe. To have a haven, a place where they can find each other and say I see you.
I'm still here. Then again, as we've come to understand so often, it isn't only music. I know that there are still awkward, anxious black and brown kids, Muslim kids from all backgrounds, who look for places where they can be themselves, songs that they can hear their experiences in, a world they can dance into and imagine themselves free. Who are still learning that everything can be weaponized, from their bodies to the spaces that they believe to be theirs, and I still hope for them. I think of them today and always. I hope that they can still slide the music they love past their parents and vanish into an album good enough that it makes them forget about everything outside. I hope they always have a place where they are not outcasts for two hours when the house lights go down. I hope they have somewhere to be unafraid and unfeared, like I did. Through the bombs and the burials, the threats and the anger, I hope they find each other in a room where a song that they know all of the words to crawls up the walls and rattles the lights above their heads. I hope they can still sneak out of their homes. I hope they can still spend their textbook money on live shows that their parents would disapprove of. This, too, is survival. Astaghfirullah.